so good morning again. Um, um, my name is Mike. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the middle of the gospel of Mark. We have been in this series called Redefining the Good Life for several months now, and we have been uh, working through the first eight chapters. We're actually starting here in chapter nine today, and if you've studied Mark extensively or at any period of time, you might know that this is the halfway point. Like, we literally made it to the halfway point, which is, you're like, we're only halfway? <laughs> um, but yeah, we're here. And this is actually a really significant point because this is where Mark takes it and sort of turns the gospel. And he sort of, sort of changes the direction a little bit of where he's wanting to take the readers. And so for the first eight chapters, it's been this, uh, they call it sort of like a, like a mountain. Then climbing the mountain, expressing who Jesus was. Like, it's all been about pointing to who Jesus was, like the Son of God, who is he? How, how do we understand this character, who is he? And at this point, you might remember from last week, Art talked about how Peter confesses, you are the Christ. It's like the pinnacle of the, of the whole gospel. And now we begin this downward ascent to where we're going to be heading towards answering the question for the rest of the time here, why did he come? And so today we're going to begin talking about why he came. So... Uh, this is a little different type of sermon. Um, I have one point. Doesn't mean it's short. <laughs> but I have one point. One, the one focus this entire passage, really sort of two and a half stories, is about this idea that God is way more concerned with your belief than with your relief. He is way more concerned with your belief than he is your relief. And I hope that you're going to begin to see this as we step into it this morning. So b before we get to the passage... Um, I want to explain why belief is so important. If you've ever been to a membership class here, uh, you've heard Art use this example, and I'm going to use it because I think it's fantastic. But he, he starts by talking about chairs. And so um, hopefully you all see this chair. Uh, there are a lot of chairs in this room, and probably when you come in, you find your spot, because we all have our spots. Like mine's right there. Matt, you're right there. Dunn's in the back. Turner's. Couriers, unless Bob's in the back there. And if you don't know where your spot is, come find me. I'll tell you where your spot is, because we <laughs> We have our spots. But most likely, you came in and you maybe put your Bible down, went and got some coffee, came back, and then you sat down and you shared. And you just kind of, you're really you're ready to go. You didn't think much about it. You didn't spend any time. I don't think, I didn't see anyone do this. I didn't see anyone pull out their Leatherman and like start trying to feel like, okay, are these screws tight enough? Like, did they do a good enough job? And I don't know, I want to make sure that this is going to hold me up. And like testing it and just kind of making sure. It's like, odds are you didn't do that. And it's not because... You're weird. We all didn't do that. But it's because you trusted the chair was going to do its job. You believed the chair was going to uphold its purpose. Like, you didn't, you didn't walk up to it and say, like, well, in, unless you've had some super negative experiences with chairs recently, <laughs> you, you likely just walked up and sat down on it. The reason why that matters is because our belief directly impacts the way we choose to live. It has direct implications for our choices, for the way we move into life. And therefore, Jesus is incredibly concerned with your belief, what you believe in, what you hold to be true more than your relief. So we're going to step into the book of Mark and start. We're going to be in chapter 9 today. Uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. We're going to read the whole passage together, so stick with me. And you can follow along on the screen if you'd like as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything Have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you've given us your word and that you long for it to lead us and teach us and change us. And so we ask this morning that that's what you would be doing. Lord, open our hearts to hear the words that you're speaking to us. May you bless this time and whatever, wherever we're coming from, whatever's going on inside of our hearts, Lord, meet us right where we are. Lord, invite us into your love. And God, please, may you make it clear to us in the text that what you long for us we lift this time, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. So we are in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. 
Uh, the first half focusing on who he was, the second half focusing on his purpose. Um, and again, it's important to point out, last week, Peter, as Art talked about, was proclaiming, Jesus, you are the Christ. But as soon as he said that, as soon as Peter claimed, said, Jesus, we confess you are the Christ, Jesus starts talking about this language of suffering. He starts bringing in, okay, you've got it, you understand who the Messiah is, but just make sure you understand, like, it involves suffering. It involves pain. And, and they're not really happy with that idea uh, because this is how Keller describes it. What seemed like it might become a story of triumph is going to look more and more like a tragedy. What seemed like it might become a story of triumph is going to look more and more like a tragedy. See, they don't understand what, what Jesus was saying as the Christ. The, the issue with it is the fact that they, they were grounded in the Old Testament. Like, the Messiahship was clearer. It was, uh, they knew he was coming to save them, but they really had a misconception of what it entailed. They thought, like, our biggest problem is Rome. We need freedom. We need the kingdom to come and make all things new. And unfortunately, Jesus is saying, like, no, that's, that's, that's actually not the issue. Like, that's not the, that's not the biggest problem. Like, you're, you're concerned about the political problem. There's actually a spiritual problem, which is way more significant. Now, they did have an understanding of a suffering servant. And in Isaiah uh, chapters 52 and 53, it says, like, like in verse 14 and 52, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of his children of mankind. And then in chapter 53, yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, they got the idea that there was a suffering servant, but they hadn't put the two together. And Jesus was making it very clear here. He's like, you get that I'm the Messiah, but it means something different than what you think because the problem is worse than you think it is. And so let's go ahead and jump into chapter 9, verse 1. And as we're going to go little by little, and hopefully this is going to kind of come in together and make more sense for you. He said, truly, I say to you, uh, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Um, now, at the outset, there's a chance that you read this passage and you're like, already I have a problem with this because this is talking about the second coming, and we know that it hasn't happened yet, and the disciples are still there. Yes, but not completely. There's more going on here. And the reason we know that is because what happens in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. You see, we, we often look at this passage where he said, like, okay, the kingdom of God is going to come in power, and you're going to see it. And we think, yes, the second coming. But what Mark is saying here and what Jesus was trying to say is like, yes and no. It's that, but it's also this. It's for you to see me for who I fully, truly am. The glorified Jesus is the coming of God in power. It's the kingdom here. And so when he says that, some standing here will see what he's saying is, you three, come with me. I'm going to show you. Now, there's a chance that you heard this passage and immediately it triggered something in you. Um, I remember Old Testament passages where there was a mountain and clouds and the glory. And so I, if you look at this passage, there are some amazing similarities between what happens here in Mark and what happens in Exodus 24, where, oddly, Moses was. Moses went up on the mountain, verse 15, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Now, that six-day thing, that's interesting, right? The fact that Mark was saying here, after six days, why? why? 
Why would he point that out? That's a really obscure number. In fact, it's like, it's a weird number. It's not a number of completion. It's not a number of perfection. It's actually a number to point you to something else. And the reason why that matters is because in, in Exodus, in, verse 20, in chapter 24, Moses is invited up the mountain, but he's kind of kept on the outside of God's glory. He's protected from it. Why? Because God hasn't established the way in which he would engage with his people yet. But what happens immediately after that in Exodus 24 is God brings him in and then lays out for him the plans of the tabernacle. The next verses and chapters are all about God saying, this is what it's going to look like for you to build a tabernacle. And the purpose of the tabernacle is for me to dwell with you. The word dwell, there's the same word as tabernacle. God wanted to be with his people, but it had to be a certain way. And so for James, John, and Peter, they saw, they, they understood there's this thing that God, he's promising, you're going to see the kingdom of God come in power, but then there's this six-day waiting period. They, they didn't know they were waiting six days, but remember, Peter is Mark's source. I guarantee you he's after the point realizing, like, that's what's going on. Like that, this, Mark skipped over six days. We don't know what happened, but for some reason that six days mattered because it was a revelation of Jesus dwelling with his people. The theme of tabernacle is throughout this passage. You, you see it again and again. Uh, we'll talk more about how Peter, James, and John wanted to uh, build something, or Peter, namely, wanted to build a tabernacle. How uh, when God enveloped them like a cloud, it's the same idea of tabernacle. We, I, just, I love that we read this in, in Revelation. Like God desires to be with his people. He wants to be among us. He wants us to dwell with him. That's the hope of heaven, right? Like, we will be with him without fear and separation. But Mark's wanting to demonstrate this theme of tabernacle and recognize, help us recognize, like, he's the Messiah. He is who he says he is. He's come to do what he said he was come to do. So chapter 9, verse 2, he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I love that description. It's just so vivid. Like no launderer could make it whiter. Um, and, and then in this, Moses and Elijah appear. I actually probably should say Elijah and Moses appear, which confuses most people because to the Jewish people, like Moses was primary and pretty much everyone else came second. Elijah was really significant. Like people revered Elijah, but Moses was the giver of the law. Like Moses led them in the Exodus out of uh, Egypt. Moses led, led them through the wilderness. Moses was a really significant figure. So to have Moses and Elijah here, or Elijah with Moses, like, it's pointing to something. Well, okay, first of all, let's remember. Moses was promised, or he promised to his people in Deuteronomy 18, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Hold on to that. It is to him you shall listen. We'll get back to that in a second. But Elijah, it says in Malachi 4, Behold, I will bring you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then even later, they're going to talk about Elijah some more, and Jesus makes it very clear. Elijah came to restore all things. So we have, in this moment, we have Moses, who was the first exodus and the giver of the law, and Elijah, who performed some pretty phenomenal miracles in the Old Testament and was the restorer of, of all things. And then Jesus, who's sort of like the consummation of that. He's like the, he is the utter fulfillment of those two promises. He is the new and better Moses who will lead the second exodus when he comes again. He is the new and better Moses who will fulfill the law. The reason why the transfiguration isn't just pointing to the second coming, it, but it, 
it's pointing to the, the cross. Mark is here. He's at this point. He's at the pinnacle, right? From now on to the rest of this chapter, Jesus has the cross in view. Like he sees what's coming. He knows what's at stake. He knows why he came and he wants people to see it. He wants them to understand, I didn't just come to, to turn over the king, like to make things the kingdom, like to bring it like you guys all think. I came because I'm, I'm going to the cross. I'm headed there. But before we get that, we, we'll, we'll get more back to Elijah in a minute. Peter and James, well, Peter looks at the whole thing and he's just like, um, rabbi, teacher, um, this is really good. Um, can we build some houses? Which I just, I love, I love. Because there's people in the world who when they're really, really afraid, say nothing. And then there's Peter. And he doesn't do that. Like he just talks. He starts throwing words out. And I love it so much because remember Peter is Mark's source. What does Mark say? For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I bet Peter is telling Mark, he's like, I said the dumbest thing. Like, uh. so we were on the mountain and Jesus was glowing and I asked him to build a house. I don't know what I was thinking. But I, I think I have a, a little idea. I think Peter might be thinking two things, and maybe together. I think the first thing is he's recognizing something about who God is. He's experiencing something about God in this moment because he sees Jesus. Uh, this is the way that one uh, commentator described it. He says, Before the eyes of his most intimate disciples, the human appearance of Jesus was perceptibly altered in accordance with the splendor of the transfigured world. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted, and Jesus' body presented itself in the form of a tenuously material light. I think Peter gets this. He's like, I'm, I'm seeing God here. Because Jesus is glowing. He's, he is, as Psalm 104 says it this way, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. God wraps himself in light. He, he uses light, light like clothing. He's that powerful. He's that amazing. And when Jesus is there and he is glowing before them, Peter is probably thinking, it's like, I... I'm in the presence of God. I, I see, I, I'm seeing God. And he's like, I want to stay here. I, I'm, oh God, please help me stay here. It's, it, many of the commentators describe this as the most intense worship. He's in the presence of God and he's like, Lord, please help me stay here. But he remembers something in Exodus 33, 20. But, he said, this is God talking, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Peter is like, oh God, this is amazing. I want to stay here. I'm not dead yet. Why am I not dead yet? I don't want to be dead yet. How can I stay here? I know I can build a house. I can build a shelter or better, a tabernacle. The entire purpose of the tabernacle in the Old Testament was God wanted to be with his people, but he had to protect them from him. He couldn't be with them, but he longed to be, which is why he developed the tabernacle. And Peter is seen here. He's like seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And he's like, I'm in the presence of God right now, and I want to stay here. How can I stay here? I need to protect myself. See, Peter's looking at God. 
He wraps himself in light. Like imagine for me this moment. You're, you're, you're following your hero, your, your, your leader. You're walking up a mountain. And all of a sudden, like, he lights up in front of you like Clark Griswold's house on Christmas Eve and just blows you away. And then you see your heroes of the faith like Martin Luther and John Calvin. You're like, this is creepy. What's going on here? Like, oh, wow, I'm in the presence of something great. This is not okay. How? But I want to stay here. Maybe you've actually experienced something, <laughs> not that. <laughs> Maybe you've experienced something like that where the spiritual and the physical came together in a way that you've never been able to even put vocabulary to. Like, you can't even explain it. It's just your heart has started to beat faster. You have felt God's presence in a way that really is unlike anything else you've ever experienced before. It might be a night of worship that you've been at. It, it might be a retreat that you've been on or, or a mission trip where God just showed up in some really powerful way and you just, you felt his presence more than in other times or an extended time of prayer or something, but you've, you've experienced God in this way and you, and you want to stay there. But the hard truth, guys, is that you, you can't. You can't stay on the mountaintop. And as we see from this moment, what happens is Jesus is transfigured before them, and then God's going to talk in a second. But then as soon as it's all over, he's back to normal. We know that because he tells them, don't tell anybody, and I guarantee you if he had been glowing like Moses was when Moses encountered God, people would have figured it out. But no, he's like, he turns back to normal. Everyone disappears. It's just Jesus. It's like nothing had ever happened. And and it's because you can't stay on the mountaintop. But that doesn't mean that the mountaintop is not significant. See, I believe that God gives us those experiences in our life because he wants us to see what's actually true. What was true about Jesus? That glorified state. He was in that moment the true Jesus. And they saw him, and they wanted to stay there. But what Jesus wants is he wants for us to see and understand and let that change our lives so that we can go into the daily life remembering what's true. My desire is that those moments, guys, will give us the vision, the heart, the energy to propel us into it. But again, the reason why Jesus is doing this isn't just to put on this great show. It's to show them that suffering is involved. See this. This is uh, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, which remind you, they're already terrified. Like, that's been established. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, if you've been with us for a little while, you might have been, I heard this, I heard a, this happened before, didn't it? Sort of. It sort of happened before. In Mark 1, verse 11, this is the baptism of Jesus. Uh, it says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's some similar words there. But who's he talking to here in Mark 1? He's talking to Jesus. In Mark 1, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the father is speaking his voice of validation over Jesus, and Jesus is receiving it as, a, as his identity, and it is propelling him into the rest of his ministry. But here in Mark 9, the second half of the book, where Jesus is demonstrating why he came, God the Father comes in and speaks and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Which is the exact same words that Moses used when he was talking to the people. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
He's not talking to Jesus. He's not talking to Moses and Elijah. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to us. He is longing, the Father is longing for us to see Jesus for who he truly is. And what's fascinating about this whole listen to him thing is it wasn't just the listen to his general teaching, he's got some good things to say. It's deeply tied to what Jesus has just been saying that they don't want to listen to. And that is the Christ came to suffer. See, I, re- I think the reason why they are so turned off by this isn't just because they don't want a Messiah who can suffer, but they know that if, they're, if they have a Messiah who's going to suffer, then they might suffer. The reason that Jesus transfigured before the disciples was for them. Look at the words. It says, after six days, he took with him, Peter and James and John. He led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And then there appeared Elijah with Moses to them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. This entire event is for the disciples. It's for us to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. And therefore, what he says must be listened to. And what does he say? I've come to die. You now know who I am? I've come to die. There is absolutely a particular relevance to the new instruction he is giving his disciples. He wants them to understand it. See, the reason, guys, is, again, that the whole idea of suffering, is we want relief, right? Our culture is bent on comfort. Like, that is the most important thing in our world. Like, at least, at least as I see it, tends to be one of the most important things in our world. Like, we want relief. We, we don't want pain. We don't want suffering. We don't want discomfort. We want things to go our way. And Jesus is saying, I, was like, I, I don't care. I don't care about that. If you, if you want to know who I am, this is who I am, and this is who I've been called to be. I have come to die. We're going to transition to the final story. So he's going down the mountain. They ask him about Elijah. He tells them, no, Elijah did come and he suffered. That was John. He tells us in Matthew, it was John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wanted to. They beheaded him. A um, lot of similarities between John and Elijah. We don't have time to get into, but, but he's pointing right now. He's like, I want you to, like, I came. Like, again, like the whole idea of tabernacle. I came to dwell with you. I came to be with you. And so in this final story, we have him walking up to uh, his disciples, um, and they're arguing with the scribes. Actually, it says the scribes were arguing with them. And so he, uh, he turns directly to the scribes, which I think is interesting because he's like, why? Why are you arguing with them? What are you arguing about? What's going on? And, they, uh, and he looks, he, he's, uh, he's questioning them, which I always find humorous because like Jesus just revealed himself to be God. Like anytime he asks a question, it's like, you know the answer. What are you doing here? Uh, but he's talking to them. And then this father steps out and he says, like, my son, I brought my son to you, and, and, and your disciples can't heal him. What's going on? Which is probably uh, causing this, this father to question greatly who Jesus is. And again, Jesus' biggest concern is that they would, people would know who he is and believe. And so the father is questioning who he is, and he's like, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything. I don't know if, can you? Are, are, you, are you worth anything? I, I, I needed you. You didn't show up. And this is what Jesus says. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. When I read this at first, I was, <laughs> if this were me, I'd be angry. I'd be a little frustrated. I'd be like, 
seriously? How long have I been with you? How long must I stay with you? Bring the kid over here. Like, that's how I would respond. <laughs> Maybe that's how you would respond. This is not the tone. Jesus, remember, he, he has just come off the, the mountain. This is my beloved son. With, uh, listen to him. I, I'm pleased with him. And he's, he's got the cross in the line. So what's going on? He's seen this. He's like, oh, how long do I have to stay? I need you guys to get it. He's looking at his disciples. He's like, I need you to get it. I'm entrusting the gospel into your hands. The ministry of, of the gospel is going to be proclaimed amongst the world by you. I need you to get it. I need you to believe me. Please get it. Bring, bring, bring the child here. The child comes over. Immediately the, the demon sees him and falls to the ground. He's writhing and foaming at the mouth. The father is just like, uh, can you help? Can you, sorry. Jesus looks at him and he says, which I think is like, how long has this been going on? Which is just like, do something, Jesus. Like, he's not at all concerned, right? Like, he's not concerned with relief in the moment. It's not the most important thing. He's actually more concerned with people's hearts. He sees what's really at stake there. He's patient. He's intentional. He's, he's got the bigger picture in mind. He's okay with a little conversation. And he looks at him and he says, what's, how long has this been going on? The father says, since, a, since he was a boy, can you please relieve us? Please give us a moment of peace. Like, please, if you have compassion, if you can, have compassion on us. Which Jesus says, if I can, anything is possible if you believe. All things are possible if you believe. It's belief. Why is belief so important? Well, in Hebrews 11, the, the, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So there's a direct tie between belief, and pleasing God. But why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is what brings you to God. It's the belief that he is who he says he is, or at least in part, that draws your heart to him. It's in seeing Jesus for who he really is. The boy is writhing in pain. Jesus asks a question because he's more concerned with the heart than that moment. And then it says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. It actually, some of the versions say, with tears. He's like, I believe. Help my unbelief. Which I am so thankful for this verse. This verse has become a mantra of mine because I, I am so quick to like find myself, I, I do, I do believe. I, I do believe. But there's a lot of unbelief there too. I don't believe wholly. I don't believe fully. God, help me. Now, I want to be quick to point out, this is not a name-it-and-claim-it theology. Like, there are preachers and ch churches out there that will tell you that if you believe something hard enough, that if you long for it enough, you will get it. That's what the Bible promises. That's not what the Bible promises here, because it's not actually about how much faith you have. It is not about how much you believe. It's about in whom you believe. It's about the object of your faith. Let's go back to this chair over here. Let's say that I believe wholeheartedly that this chair will hold me up. Like, I would sit in that right now. I could, pr to prove to you, but I'm not, I don't need to. I, I'm actually quite comfortable standing. Um, I'm used to it by now. It's, yeah, I'm okay. Like, I believe, chair, that you could hold me. But I'm, but I, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Now, 
there's, a, there's potential in my heart that there's some faith there, but my actions don't demonstrate it, right? Like, I don't trust this chair. At least, I'm tired by this point. I've been up here a while. I would love to sit down, but I, I don't need him. I don't need him. I'm good. Or, ah, uh, you burned me in the past, chair. I, I, I need you. I need you right now, but I'm really afraid. I, um, I, don't, I don't trust you. I really don't trust you, but I, I need you. I, need, I, I don't believe, I need you. I need you. See, I believe that's what God wants us to do way more often than we're willing to. I believe he wants us, but it says in Hebrews 11, to come to him even when we're struggling because it is in the belief that we come to him that we can actually say, God, I, I actually believe you can give me all the things I need right now, but I'm, but I'm okay on my own. Like, I've got enough. You've given me a lot of gifts, a lot of skills. Like, I'm okay. I don't need you right now. I'm good. And um, I, I, I'm going to, Honestly, I'm a little hurt. You haven't given me all the things I've wanted. You ha- My life isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. I, I had these visions. I thought this was where you were taking me. I thought I was. I thought these things were going to happen a certain way, and I don't trust you. I don't trust you right now, God. But I, but I need you, God. I'm realizing more and more I, I can't do it on my own. I need you. I. I but I, I don't. I don't, I don't know if I can trust you. And God's like, I know. But I, but I want to. I don't trust you, but I need you. I don't, I don't trust you. I don't, I don't trust you. God, I, I don't. Help. Please help me. My life's not working the way I thought it was going to. What's not going the way I was anticipating? Things aren't coming together. And he's like, I know, I, I know. It's because like, I was never concerned with your relief. I was never concerned with your heart. And he's like, you know what just happened? You brought, I brought you to me. Because I want you. Like the reason he longs for faith, guys, is because he longs for us. He wants us to come to him because he knows the most significant thing we can do is wrap our lives around his love, around who he is. This is what Piper describes it this way. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That's because when we actually put all of our hopes and desires and needs in him, he, he's glorified. But then we're actually satisfied. The things that we long for are actually met in them. And it's because his glory, he's not this, he's, he's not this God who's up there saying like, oh, please believe in me. Oh, please, please believe in me. I really need you to believe in me. Oh, there's one. He believes in me. Yes. Okay, well, is anyone else? Like, he doesn't need us for that. It's for our good that he longs for us to believe. See, what's going on here is he's not testing Jesus' ability, but he's actually testing the Father's refusal to set limits on what can be accomplished by the power of God. He's, he wants us to believe in him. Now, now why, why is that so important? This is what Martin Luther says. He says, The scriptures see into the heart to the root and main source of all sin, unbelief in the depth of the heart. Like Luther ties sin and like, like unbelief like this. Thus, even faith alone alone makes just and brings the spirit and the desire to do good external works. So it is only unbelief which sins and exalts the flesh and brings desire to do evil external works. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in paradise. It is a heart that does not believe that God is good towards you, or that he has you, that he will be there for you, and that actually what he wants for you is the best thing that has led to sin. 
because what you believe matters. It leads to that. And any time that I'm looking to something to give me what I know that God ultimately has promised in the truest sense, I'm sinning. Anytime, and I don't know what it looks like for you. It might be sleep. Uh, it might be food. It might be alcohol. It might be just rest. It might be uh, music or movies or any, any form of entertainment. It might be a good book, an escape. It might be a vacation. It might be a trip. It might be a relationship. Anytime that I'm looking for this thing to give me what I want to fill this deep desire for joy or peace or wholeness or freedom, I'll be left lacking because I'm not looking to him. Only he can meet me. And my belief that I can get it somewhere else and that I need to get it somewhere else is what takes me away from God's heart. It's like he wants to give us those things. It's because he longs good things for us. Luther goes on, he says, that is why only unbelief is called sin by Christ. As he says in John 16, chapter 16, the spirit will punish the world because of sin because it does not believe in me. Like, that's a crazy connection, right? Like, that's the only thing he calls sin. Furthermore, before good or bad works happen, which are the good or bad fruits of the heart, there has to be present in the heart either faith or unbelief, the root, sap, and chief power of all sin. That is why in the scriptures, unbelief is called the head of the serpent and the ancient dragon which the offspring of the woman, i.e. Christ, must crush, as was promised to Adam. Unbelief must be crushed in our hearts or else we won't go to God. Like sin just draws us further and further away. Like unbelief in my heart takes me to a place where I realize that I want something. God has put this desire there, by the way. Like God has given us those deep, deep desires, but I long for a way to get it, a distorted way to get it, and I look for it, and it leads me to sin. And this is what Ravi Zachariah says about sin. He says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Isn't it amazing when I find myself stepping out a little bit in this unbelief and I don't actually trust God for something that I begin to go more and more and I become more comfortable not trusting him and I find my heart becoming more and more away from him? This is why Jesus is so concerned with belief. The story even ends. Jesus raises, here, he casts out the demon, the, throws the boy down. The boy looks dead, which, by the way, Mark is not accidentally connecting the idea that death must come before life. But Jesus reaches down and he raises the boy up and he lifts him, gives him back to his father. And then inside, the, the disciples are like, Jesus, what happened? He's like, you didn't believe in me. You didn't pray. See, prayer is the, when we pray, it reveals the full reliance on the unlimited power of God. It realizes that it's not about me. Whatever skills, gifts, abilities I have, it doesn't matter. Prayer is when I come to God and say, like, it's not about me. I've tried me long enough. It's not working. I need you. And that's, that's why we do this every week. We forget like if, if, if we didn't forget, God would have looked at Jesus in Mark 1 and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Um, and that would have been it. Like we would have been always remembered. But no, he comes back and he says like, no, listen to him. Remember, he is who he says he is. And there's really only two things we can do with this, right? Like if you don't know Jesus today, if you've never come to a personal relationship with Christ, if you've not looked at him and said to him like, yeah, I see the evidence. There's a lot of evidence 
You are the son of God. If you've never done that, if you've never recognized that your sin has taken you away from God and you need him to forgive you, then the call today in this passage is believe. Believe he is who he says he is. And the reason why that so much, like, so many things are connected to the Old Testament and like Jesus was desperately wanting his disciples to get it. He was doing everything he could for them to see throughout this whole passage. I am the son of God. I am the Christ who you claim to be. But there's a, something else going on here. I need you to see it and believe me. If you've never done that, believe. But for those of you who, who have accepted Jesus, believe. Don't become like the disciples. Don't think that the power is in you, that it was given to you and therefore you're good to go. Like, no, it's, we've got to live there. We've got to continue to trust. We've got to go back. And when we say, God, I don't trust you, I don't trust you, I don't trust you, to trust him anyway, to try him, to give him a chance to show up because he wants to. He wants your heart so badly. He, he's desperate for it because he knows it's the best thing for you. And if you do know him, this meal's for you. That's why we come here. Keller sums this up this way. On the mountain, we see Jesus surrounded by God. Like That's what we got to see, right? Jesus was surrounded by God. On the cross, he will be forsaken. On the mountain, we see the life he has always led, embraced and clothed with the love and light of God. But on the cross, he will be naked in the dark. It's like he, he came to die. Like remember, he, why did he come? He came for the cross. He went on the cross because he knew that he had to die for us, because he knew that he had to give his body and his blood. And that's why we come every week to remember. We need to remember every week. It's not our good. It's not our power. It's not our ability. It's his. He longs for us to know him. That's, that's the good life. Like the whole, it's, it's the good life. It is full reliance, trust in the unlimited power of God. It's coming to him, trusting him again and again and again, seeing what he did for you, recognizing he longs for you. That's the good life. So the question is, do you see him? Do you see him for who he rightly is and who he longs to be in your heart? Let's pray. Father, I know that there are so many times in my life where I, I just want to take control. I, you, haven't, you haven't led me where I wanted to go. And, and I'm, I'm sure that's true of people in this room. But God, the truth of the matter is, like, your heart is so good to us. You long so many good things for us. It, it's actually our good that you long to give because we are your children. You died for us. So, Father, help us to believe, Lord. We do believe. Help our unbelief. And may, as we experience the glory and the beauty of the glorified body of Jesus in the transfiguration, as we experience the mountaintop of worship, that you would propel us into our daily lives. And we would live changed, trusting you, faithful. We come to you, Lord, and we lift all this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. If you know Jesus, this meal is for you. If you don't know Jesus, there's nothing stopping you today. You can accept him. You can come to him. But if, if you're not sure yet, stay in your seat. Just reflect and pray. But if you know the Lord, if you know Jesus, this is meal is for you. I invite you to come to the table.